This morning's scripture passage comes from the book of Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 40. If you're using one of the Bibles on the end of um, the row or in the pocket in front of you, it begins on page 699. I'm going to be reading the entire chapter of Isaiah 40. Isaiah chapter 40, beginning in verse 1. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice cries, in the wilderness prepare the way of the Lord, make straight In the desert, a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up, and every mountain and hill be made low. And uneven ground shall become level, and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed. And all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord is spoken. A voice says, cry. And I said, what shall I cry? All flesh is grass, and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, and the flower fades. When the breath of the Lord blows on it, surely the people are grass. The grass withers, and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Go up on a high mountain, O Zion. Herald of good news, lift up your voice with strength. O Jerusalem, herald of good news, lift it up, fear not, Say to the cities of Judah, Behold your God. Behold, the Lord comes with might and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens with a span, enclosed the dust of the earth in a measure, and weighed the mountains and scales and the hills in a balance. Who has measured the spirit of the Lord, or what man shows him his counsel? Whom did he consult, and who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice, and taught him knowledge, and showed him the way of understanding? Behold, the nations are like a drop in a bucket, drop from a bucket, And are accounted as the dust on the scales. Behold, he takes up the coastlands like fine dust. Lebanon would not suffice for fuel, nor are its beasts enough for a burnt offering. All the nations are as nothing before him. They are accounted by him as less than nothing and emptiness. To whom then will you liken God, or what likeness can compare with him? An idol? A craftsman casts it. And a goldsmith overlays it with gold and casts it for silver chains. He who is too impoverished for an offering chooses wood that will not rot. He seeks out a skilled full craftsman to set up an idol that will excuse me to set up an idol that will not move. Do you not know? Do you not hear? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth, and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers, who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in, 
who brings princes to nothing and makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness. Scarcely are they planted, scarcely sown, scarcely has their stem taken root in the earth. Then he blows on them, and they wither, and the tempest carries them off like stubble. To whom then shall you compare me, that I should be like him, says the Holy One. Lift up your eyes on high and see who created these. He who brings out their host by number, calling them by name, by the greatness of his might, and because he is strong in power, not one is missing. Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, and my might is disregarded by my God? Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint, and to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youths shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not be faint. This is God's word. Thanks be to God for it. I'm glad to be up here this morning. So just a year ago, I stood up here on my candidating visit and preached to our church. And the week after that, uh, the shutdown happened. And here I am a year later, uh, standing before you all. And the last year has been quite a year, right? Um, and that Sunday back then, there, were no, uh, there was no tape on the pews. There were no masks. Um, and even as this year has been difficult, we grieve over that. Um, but we are setting our sights ahead in hope. And we're excited about what's to come. So let me pray for us before we jump in here this morning. Lord, we come to you because we are in need. We're in need of your word. We're in need of a vision of you that transcends our life, our daily life. We need to see you, Lord, and we, so we ask that you would come. Holy Spirit, lift up Jesus Christ among us, that we might see him and be strengthened by him in our weakness. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, as many of you know, I lived in New Hampshire for uh, quite a few years. And in the northern region of New Hampshire, there are the White Mountains. And the White Mountains are the northern region of the Appalachian Mountains. And in those mountains, there's a range of peaks uh, that they call the Presidential Range. There's maybe eight peaks or so, all named after presidents. And in the middle, they rise up to the top at Mount Washington. And Mount Washington is one of the highest peaks in the Appalachian Mountains. And so I want to show a picture briefly of Mount Washington, just to kind of give us a, an image here. It's pretty massive, right? Um, it's, it's a beast of a mountain. Um, and so a few friends of I and I uh, decided to do what is considered an annual tradition out there. So there's this annual thing where people hike this range in the middle of the night on the last full moon of the summer. 
And uh, you start at sunset at one side of it, and you hike through uh, sunrise onto the other side. But in the middle there, you get to see the sunrise uh, right over Mount Washington. And and we did it. Um, And so that's the picture that we were able to see. And so our friends, or my friends and I, we prepared. We spent the whole summer uh, hiking. We, We trained. We got in better shape. We accumulated the knowledge that we needed of the trails and the routes that we were taking so that we could make our way through the dark. We discerned what were the best foods to keep us going and how much of them to bring. We got new uh, shoes, new backpacks, and we had, had our sights on that sunrise. We wanted to hike this range. We wanted to do it together, and, uh, and we did, and it was majestic. And so the past few months, our pastor elder team has been uh, meeting together and praying and talking about where we want to see our church go. What's our sunrise at the top of the mountain, so to speak? And how do we get there? So we want to share that vision with you that the Lord, we believe the Lord is leading us into. And that vision is to see the weak, wounded, and wayward enjoy the living Jesus. What do we mean by that? Well, we're going to spend the next five weeks telling you about it. And even more, explaining what we mean by using the book of Isaiah. We're going to peer into God's word together and behold the holy heart of the living Jesus for the weak, wounded, and wayward. So that together we might be transformed into a people that love him more than anything else. So let's jump into Isaiah 40 here. We just heard it read. Isaiah 40 is a major shift in the book of Isaiah. For the first 39 chapters of the book, it's almost exclusively a proclamation of judgment. Judgment on the people of God for their rebellion and judgment upon the nations. He foretells their future banishment from their land into the foreign nation of Babylon. Turn to Isaiah 1 briefly. So hold your place in Isaiah 40. Turn to Isaiah 1 just to get a glimpse of what I'm talking about here. Isaiah 1 verse 30 says this. For you shall be like an oak. He's speaking to the people of Israel. You shall be like an oak whose leaf withers, and like a garden without water. Verse 31, and the strong shall become tender, and his work a spark, and both of them shall burn together with none to quench them. That's, That's a summary of the first 39 chapters of Isaiah. And the nation of Babylon was a powerful, a formidable foe to anyone who would have come against them. And the people of God are captive to them, will be captive to them, withering in exile. And you have to wonder if they were asking things like, has God abandoned us? Is he able to save us? Can we come back from this? And then we read in Isaiah 40, comfort, comfort says your God. Comfort my people, speak tenderly to Jerusalem, and cry to her that her warfare has ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. God moves here from prophecy of judgment and condemnation to a promise of comfort. God wants to console his people 
Israel had paid their debts, suffered the just penalty for their sin, and yet at the same time, God is pardoning their iniquity. God now tells Isaiah to speak tenderly to Jerusalem. And as we listen to his words, we hear, number one, a word in the wilderness. Number two, about a king without rival. And number three, about a vision worth waiting for. Number one, a word in the wilderness. Turn to verses three and four out of Isaiah 40. A voice cries, in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up and every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level and the rough places a plain. What does he mean by prepare a way for the Lord in the wilderness? This is a call to repent. There's this promise of comfort, and then there's a call to repent here, to return to the Lord. God is coming to save them from exile in the desert, so they need to get ready. It's a call to humble faithfulness to God's covenant with them. For when God comes, he promises that he's going to level the playing field. All the haughty will be humbled, and the lowly will be lifted. The big, bad Babylonians like Mount Everest, like Mount Washington, will be laid low, and the people of God, like the Grand Canyon, eroded by years of sun and rain, will be raised. But notice how the comfort God gives his people doesn't take the shape that we might expect. God comforts them with promises of mighty deeds of deliverance. He comforts them with the severity of his righteous right arm. We often think salvation is freedom from bad feelings, suffering, circumstantial lack. But in these verses, we hear that salvation is seeing the glory of the living God, which then he goes on to say in verse 5. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken." When God comes to save in this mighty way, his mighty arm and loving heart are on grand display. Everyone will see it and tremble before him. Basically, Isaiah goes on to expound on verse 5 for the rest of the chapter. He does so by drawing a contrast between the weakness of man and the glory of God. The weakness of man and the power of God. So we're going to focus on the first word of our vision statement, to see the weak enjoy the living Jesus. So what do we mean by weak? Look at verses 6 to 8. All flesh is grass, and all its beauty. That word beauty, if you look, if if you have an ESV, you can see a footnote there. It really means constancy. It's the same word that's used for God's steadfast covenantal love. All all its constancy, its commitment, its steadfastness is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Think about grass for a moment. Grass is fickle, vulnerable, it's defenseless. 
Flowers are beautiful, yeah, but delicate. Passing. In a moment, both can perish. If they get too much sun, if they get too little sun, if they get too much water, if they get too little water. And I had a front row seat to this when a friend of mine gave me a beautiful, lush begonia plant right before Jamie and I were about to move up here. And it was amazing. It was so exciting because this guy had been growing this for years. And uh, we're getting ready to move. It's a hot 90, 95 degree day out. And I thought, hey, let's get ahead of the game. I'm going to put this in the car. We've got a little bit of time left. And in a matter of like five minutes, I go out to the car and it is a shriveled mess. Now, I do have two leaves left over that are propagating in my office. You can check them out later. Grass is vulnerable, and that's who we are. To be human is to be vulnerable, to be weak. At the very core of who we are, you will find need. Fragility. The very air we breathe, the food we eat, the houses we live in, the water we drink, our savings account, our spouses, our friends, our family, the health of our bodies, the stability of our minds, all bear witness every day to our need and dependence on God to sustain us. In a moment, these things can buckle. And when they do, we wither. We face exhaustion, loneliness, anxiety, illness, And like grass, eventually the very life that God has given to us will pass away. We are passing shadows in the grand scheme of things. Think for a moment. When I die, in a matter of a generation or two, no one will know my name. I didn't even meet my grandfathers. Because one died right when I was born, and the other ran off from my grandmother. How much more for us in a matter of a generation or two? Surely we are grass. And yet, many of us here, many of us watching at home, get that at this point in time. We feel that. We see the people around us withering and suffering and need. We ourselves feel the weight of that. And the Israelites did too. They they kind of already got that. They were in exile, withering. We read that very verse in Isaiah 1, where God prophesied that. And so if we look here at the verses in context, God isn't so much speaking of the Israelites, although they are flesh too, but he's declaring that even the Babylonians are a passing blade of grass in the meadow of history. And in a word, he can wipe them out to redeem his people. In a word, God can silence our foes. All that holds us captive, no matter their size or scope, and deliver us from our enemies. Thus, the grass withers, yes, but the word of the Lord stands forever. God's word is his promise to his people. And his, his promise testifies to who he is. For what he says, 
He does. What he does says who he is. So for his word to stand forever is for him to stand forever. He reigns as king over all flesh. A king without rival who will come and rescue his people. Number two, a king without rival. Look with me at verses 12 uh, to 14. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens with a span, enclosed the dust of the earth in a measure, and weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in a balance? Who has measured the spirit of the Lord, or what man shows him his counsel? Whom did he consult, and who made him understand? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth, and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers, verse 22 says, who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in. Ocean, the oceans of the earth cover about 70% of the surface area of our planet. Even more, they say only about 5% of the oceans have been explored. That's 95% of the oceans that we haven't even touched. We don't even know what's going on there. We've only seen a fraction of these waters, let alone held them in our hands. But he does, and he literally holds the weight of the world, and the mountains are as dust to him. If you've climbed mountains, you get the, the grandeur of what he's saying here. He hung the galaxies in space and wears them as a robe of glory. Just recently, last week, NASA successfully landed a rover on Mars. It's really amazing to see. They're sending these like HD pictures back to Earth. And right now, Mars is kind of on the other side of the orbit of the sun. It's 140 million miles away. You've got just the size of that, and then you've got the technology that we've created to be able to do that, to be able to somehow operate a rover all the way that far away. Americans are astounded at this, and yet Mars is like a bead or a speck on God's drapes that he's made for his house. And the nations are like the little drops of water that you Wipe up after you do the dishes. China, North Korea, Russia, Iraq, the United States of America are nothing to him. The powers of man are nothing to him. They're like grasshoppers or my poor begonia. But dust on the scales of time, for he is the author of time and stands outside of it. He's the author who has crafted each and every contour of creation and knows every nook and cranny of it. He stands apart from the cosmos, ruling it in power, even as he's invading it to redeem his people. Verse 25, To whom then will you compare me that I should be like him, says the Holy One? What do you believe rivals God? In his power, his power to save, strengthen, redeem. Maybe it's some facet of your weakness. 
your circumstances. Maybe it's some struggle you have. Maybe it's a God of your own making that we just confessed. A God made by the world. This was the Israelites. They'd fallen into comparing their plight to the power of God. And so it is a wonder when God gives them the vision that he does in verses 10 to 11. And this is a vision worth waiting for, for them. Read verses 10 to 11. Behold, the Lord God comes with might and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. The king of heaven who sits above the circle of the earth comes to his people who have sinned against him and tends them like a shepherd. The arms that made all things will gather his weak, wounded, and wayward lambs and with the hands that hold the waters of the earth He'll hold them close to his chest. The God of might will take his people and their little ones and lead them into life again in him. And so we see here that to be saved by God is not just to be saved from the plight that we are dealing with, from our weakness, from our suffering. To be saved is to be saved into the living God, into his very arms. And so Isaiah calls to them into their doubt, their fear. Why do you say, verse 28, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, and my right is disregarded by my God. He's saying, how can you say that God has forgotten you, that he's cast you aside forever, that he's somehow a far way off? Even though he is, he's also near. Have you not known, he says, have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint and to him who has no might. He increases strength. Verse 31. Who gets this strength? Who are the people that receive this strength? Those who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. Those who wait shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Notice how he he doesn't say those who mount up with wings will be strengthened. Those who run will be strengthened. Those who walk will not faint. He says those who wait will run. Those who wait will walk. It's the ones who wait for the Lord and bank everything on his promise that are strengthened. And to wait here, we've got to be clear about this. To wait is not just sitting around until something happens. It means preparation, paying attention to what needs to be done in anticipation for what is to come. Jamie and I, I'm going to start crying. Jamie and I are awaiting a baby girl (laughs) in June. But we're not just sitting around on our couch doing nothing. And we're definitely not living life before we were expecting a child. No, we're preparing. Our minds and our hearts are being rearranged around her arrival. 
And, and her arrival is about her. It's not about freedom from the suffering that Jamie is experiencing, although that's going to be nice for her. And this is what Isaiah is calling the people here to, to wait. And their waiting was not in vain, for God did deliver them from exile. He did carry his lambs in his arms and lead them into life again. And yet the mighty deeds of salvation that God did to deliver his people from exile were simply a foretaste of what was to come for them, for us. For the people remained in bondage to sin, to death, to the frailty of their flesh. But God was promising a fuller and final deliverance. For the God, this king without rival, who was set apart from all flesh, became flesh in Jesus Christ, we read in John 1, 14. The everlasting God who channels his power to carry his lambs, used his power to become a lamb, a weak lamb, a dependent lamb. And even more, when he came to his own people, the very same people that he brought out of exile here in Isaiah 40, they rejected him and crucified him. God became a blade of grass in Jesus Christ that was set on fire for the sins of the weak. But his withering was not in vain. His weakness was not for naught, for he was raised to show that the everlasting God is not only able to strengthen the faint and even give power to the powerless, but is able to raise the dead. He silences the boast of sin and grave. He is our resurrected king without rival. His understanding is unsearchable. If death is no match for him, then how much more does everything else that comes against his people pale in comparison? There's no match for his mighty power to redeem. No sin, no lack, no societal decay that we see, no relational breakdown, no marital strife, no pain, no addiction, no lies, no fear, for not even death itself is a rival. He's able to strengthen the weak, and the strength that he gives is himself. The means by which he empowers us is through the joy of his presence with us. He abides in us, and we in him. Therefore, we know that we are held in his mighty arms. We are dear to him. He sees and he knows and he invites us to walk with him in faithfulness and find that life with him is far better than anything else. That's our vision statement right there. He doesn't just take away our need. He doesn't take away our need, but he meets it and he gives us so much more. And he shows us that need isn't necessarily a bad thing, for it leads us into dependence on him. He doesn't always take away all that bears down on us, although it's good to ask that he does. But he bears us up to be able to persevere through it. Jamie and I have a friend that was born with cerebral palsy, 
And unbelievably, through a ton of work, uh, she's able to walk today. And yet she uses a walker. Uh, Her feet drag as she tries to move along, but she does it. Um, She says that most days she wakes up with immense pain. She often falls, much to her discouragement. She's a woman that's well acquainted with weakness. Every day, every step. And you'd expect that she would want strong legs, right? But she would say that she doesn't. I was just texting with her yesterday. She says that she thanks God for her weak legs because they remind her that she needs Jesus. Every day, every step, and even more, even more, if you talk to her, at this point in her life, it's not even spiritual strength that she longs for or even healing in the coming age in heaven, but Jesus himself. She's like, I I just want to enjoy his presence, the joy of abiding in him. Jesus doesn't promise to save us from our need. But he promises to save us into joyful union with him. That is the vision of our church, that we, the weak, would find our ultimate joy, not in the relief of our need, but in the person of Jesus who bears us up in it. So here at Community, in everything we do, in all our ministries, from the men's ministry, the women's ministry, our children's ministry, our outreach team working with missionaries across the globe, to our uh, people that help clean our building, maintain our building, make meals for our people when they need it, in all our ministries, all our missions, to everyone inside these doors and outside these doors, we offer the beauty, the glory, and the love of the living Jesus, so that he might be our everything. And that the world, that our neighborhoods would see his mighty heart in us, that the glory of God would be revealed and that all flesh would see it together. But we can't conjure this up, right? It's a pretty big vision, right? That's the point. Uh, My small group, my community group, was just... um, working through Ray Ortland's The Gospel Book. We're a little behind from everybody else because we just got started. But we're in chapter 5, and he quotes Charles Spurgeon, who says it very well. He says this, It seems to me that the most scriptural system of church government is that which requires the most prayer, the most faith, and the most piety to keep it going. The church of God was never meant to be an automation. If it were, the wheels would all act of themselves. The church was meant to be a living thing, a living person. And as the person cannot be supported if life is absent or if food is kept back or if breath is suspended, so it should be with the church. We need God to come and lead us into real, lasting, joyful dependence on him. That's where real joy is found. For then our strength and our joy is not in ourselves, in our circumstances, in our stuff, but it's in him and he will stand forever. And we will wait. We will wait in hope, in eagerness, in labor, preparation, 
with life rearranging faith for him to come. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you so much for Isaiah 40. Thank you so much for your promise to deliver us, your promise to strengthen us. Lord, I pray, Lord, that for all the the people um, that feel the weight of their weakness today, that you would lead them into life in you, that you would strengthen their weak knees, empower their fickle hearts, and give them a faith that's strong and stable and that's grounded in you, our living Christ. In Jesus' name, amen.